Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kurt, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGG Pod. Is it LGG Pod or LGG Podcast, Kirk? I don't have my sheet uh, in front think, of me. I thought it's podcast. <laughs> I think it's lggpodcast.com. I think the email is lggpod. You can tell how many people tweet at us by how well we know these things. Or uh, It is lggpodcast.com. Ah, I knew it all <laughs> along. I was testing Kirk. Um, we are here for season four of LGG Podcast, episode two. It is uh, late January, and uh, today's episode is going to be maybe something a tradition will start, Public Domain Day. Uh, all the uh, public domain works are, well, a bunch of copyrights have expired and uh, a bunch of new works entered the public domain on January 1 of this year. And we thought it would be fun to kind of talk about what some of those are, because as we mentioned in a prior episode, I think it was one of our character copyright episodes, there was an enormous amount of influential uh, uh, cultural works that were developed in the United States and published or released in the 1920s. And we are halfway through that decade of work. So uh, stuff that was published originally in 1925 entered the public domain on January 1 of this year. And uh, there's some big names in that list, Kirk. Yeah, there is. And it's, it, I think it sort of, it makes sense to talk about the fact. I think you know, anybody who's done anything associated with, you know, literature, you tend to bump into the 1920s oftentimes being referred to as sort of one of the great decades of American literature. You know, a lot of people we think of as sort of the great American novelists are from the 1920s. You know, you're the English major, so you can do more about this than I can, but it, it's one of those words. It does seem like that's a very important decade and it's worth noting that that's the works we're talking about right now entering the public domain. So we're talking very much about American literature. Yeah, for sure. You've got yet Ernest Hemingway, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, although he's pretty much only known for one book. Uh, Faulkner was writing around this time. T.S. Eliot. There's a lot of stuff. And you also have, uh, in parallel with this, a lot of influential musical works. We have the rise of jazz yep. um, and, and sort of the emergence of, uh, of um, I guess I'd say early versions of what we call pop uh, music now. We're seeing a lot of evolution there. And, uh, and film also, the film industry really starts to take off in the 1920s. We see the introduction of uh, films that actually have audio tracks. Like, <laughs> Sound. 1925, I don't think yet. I think they're still using... Um, uh, word boards, but I believe that's correct. Yeah, I think we're still talking. We, we don't have talkies yet, you know. Yeah, as the a, talkies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and we were just talking before we started. Like the evolution of audio recording technology actually, in, in some respects, lagged behind uh, video recording. I mean, we had movies before we could really effectively synchronize the sound with them. It was just too difficult to do both at once. So, um, so there's a lot of stuff that's uh, entering the public domain, and probably the the one of the first oddities of the way this works is. Regardless of when they were published in 1925, they all entered the public domain at the same time, January 1st of 2021. Yep. So we were just saying that means you should have published on January 2nd <laughs> and squeeze out next year of copy of copyright term out of your out of your books. Yeah, you definitely don't want to publish on December 31st. I mean, that's the yeah. <laughs> that's like when I had my oldest daughter. She was born on January 9th. I'm like, really? We couldn't squeeze this out 10 days before and get the tax deduction for that year too. 
Or is it, for anybody who is, is foremost in St. Louis and personal property taxes, everybody also oh, knows you never buy a yeah. car in December. You always buy it in January for yeah, some Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. So let's talk about some of this stuff. Um, one of the more interesting ones is uh, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which um, virtually everybody listening to this has probably read at least once, interestingly, except for Kirk. <laughs> yeah. And so th- this is the joke about it. We were talking about this ahead of time. You talk about, you know, that these are the works that are you know, incredibly influential, known through high school, you know, so we all encounter them at school and we're assigned them. I never read The Great Gatsby. Now, I have seen the modern movie um, of it. I've not seen the older movies, but I have who, seen Who was in movie. that? Was that the, the Leonardo Leonardo, version? Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, and it's, it was a while ago I saw it, but I did want to see it. But it's, I think it's just the nature of my English. I mean, I actually took AP English in high school, um, but the teacher I had was one very into Shakespeare. And so we studied a lot of sort of Shakespeare, but she was also very open in what you were allowed to read in conjunction with reading um, sort of literature. So we were given basically, you have to read something from this time period. Here are authors, which are acceptable, pick a book and read it. And so, you know, I read Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities in that, but that's kind of the one that most people, the only one that a lot of people have ever heard of. Um, I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you know, which most people know as the, the plot line of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. But, and, and that was the book that taught me I need annotated versions because that, if anybody who's read Heart of Darkness, you have to have read like a hundred pieces of literature. Yeah, it's pretty inaccessible. Point, yeah, <laughs> at which point in time, Heart of Darkness becomes an absolutely brilliant work if you understand the hundred works that it's based on. Well, it's, uh, those <laughs> historical novels too, like a lot of them are set in their time period. Like I've, I've, I've heard several times, so I was an English major and at some point about 10 years ago, I was like, all right, I want to read before I die all of the greatest literature of all time. So did a bunch of research on what is considered to be the greatest novel ever written. And the only con- Consensus to the extent that there is one that I've seen is Brothers Karamazov. I don't know okay, if I'm yeah. pronouncing that right, but probably Karamazov. Karamazov. So I'm like, oh, great. Russian literature, not my favorite, although I have enjoyed <laughs> some of like uh, Kafka's short stories and stuff like that. Um, there's some good stuff in there. The short, shorter works I enjoy more. But I bought an annotated version because I know a lot of the plot line revolves around the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I just don't understand how it's structured and like the cultural implications of people's roles and responsibilities in, in the, that church. So I bought an, an annotated version that I thought would drop footnotes and explain to me what all these different positions are. Uh, no, it mostly was just translations of, of, or explanations of Russian words that don't have an English translation at all. Like, well, I don't need you to explain borscht to me, you know, <laughs> it's beet soup. It's pretty good too, actually. <laughs> Like, I just, I need to know what, what all these things are. So I, I got about four chapters into it. Um, I, I did like it, but I, I've never actually finished it. So, but that's beside the point. The Brothers Karamazov is not entering the public domain here yet, or, or, or it already has one of the two, but uh, Great Gatsby is usually also on that list as one of the greatest works of fiction of all time. Certainly one of, if not the greatest American novel of all time. Um, didn't care for it myself. <laughs> I found it to, uh, the characters to be unlikable, perhaps by design. I don't know, uh, and, and inaccessible. So, for those of you who have read it, we have you know, it, you know, regardless of whether you like the book or not, it's indisputably one of the most influential novels uh, in, in the history of the country. And so, it is now public domain, and a lot can be done with it. Um, Kirk, what does that mean? What, what, so, what can we do with The Great Gatsby now? Clearly, people were making movies before. We just talked about one that was made a couple of years ago. How, how, how did they get to do that? When and, and what difference does it make if it's public domain now? Yep. So, public domain and the sort of simple answer to public domain means owned by the public. 
So at this point in time, essentially, there is no ownership right to any individual, or in this case, his estate, yeah. um, that owns the rights to, at this point in time, The Great Graspy, the novel. And we should put into the fact this is just the novel, just the book. And we'll talk a little bit about that differently, but in a few minutes, but it's one of those where what we're really talking about is that nobody now owns rights in it. The public owns rights in it and the public can do whatever they want with it. What this means is, is if you want to go get the great Gatsby, you want to take the book, you want to write a screenplay from it. There is absolutely nothing anybody associated with F. Scott Fitzgerald can do to you. I'm just going to publish it and sell copies. Anybody can yeah, do it. Or just publish it and sell copies. You well, why would copies. you buy them? Anybody else can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and stuff like that. So it's, it's one of those where you really have these things that basically say, at this point in time, you can do anything you'd like in conjunction with the work. Um, and basically the original rights holders, the rights holders that held the rights in 2020 cannot do anything to stop you. Um, so here's a, a perhaps academic question on multiple levels. Does this mean now that for the rest of time, nobody studying English in an American college is ever going to have to pay for a paperback <laughs> copy of Great Gatsby again? I guess I'm aging myself a little bit. People probably don't use paperback books anymore in college, but um, you know. so I, I find a copy at my local bookstore and I want to charge $20 for it. How, how can I do that? What, what makes that copyrightable? Why can't I just go get my own? Well, one, it doesn't have to be copyrightable in order for them to charge you 20 bucks to yeah. do it. I if mean, I'm a sucker and I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it. We can talk about capitalism all we like because it is kind of a focus of The Great Gatsby. Uh, but the, uh, the thing with it is at this point in time, what you're basically looking at is the individual copies that are made may still have copyrights in them. So example, we talked about annotated copies earlier. Yeah. If somebody does an annotated copy of The Great Gatsby, the annotations have a copyright separately than the book itself. Yep. And that's probably going to be later. One presume it is later because you can't do an annotated version until the novel itself is existent in existence. So since the Great Gatsby expired today, any on in January first, any um, annotated version is going to have a longer copyright, presumably because it has to have been generated after the Great Gatsby um, itself. So you, you can look at it and sort of say those kind of things. Similarly, I talked about you know the Leonardo DiCaprio movie that has its own copyright. You can't make you know go out and make videotape copies of the Great Gatsby the movie, but you could make your own movie. If you actually wanted to go out and say, I want to perform The Great Gatsby, I want to do a movie of it, um, you write your own screenplay uh, based mm -hmm. on The Great Gatsby. Those are things that you know can't be stopped. Uh, you could do translations in the same way. You can translate this into other languages. Uh, if somebody wants to write you know, The Great Gatsby in Klingon, they're totally entitled to do that. Nobody can stop them. Um, so those are the kind of things that you can be looking at. Um, you know, in conjunction with that, actually, as you think about it, translating to Klingon doesn't make any nearly as much sense as translating into Ferengi. Yeah, Ferengi makes much more sense. <laughs> J, J, they can rename it to Jay Gats in the quest for gold press Latin. As bad as it is, I could totally see somebody doing that. It would probably be hilarious. But then, but then Daisy Buchanan has to be like a, a, a Bajoran or something. <laughs> this is getting really off the rails. We're, it was getting up, the rails, to, up to our billing as the nerd podcast. But it would also, I have to admit, that would actually be really fun. <laughs> see, that I'd watch, right? <laughs> Or we might all enjoy it. Yeah, it might be better than, you know, the other movie adaptations that have ever been made. Speaking uh, of the other one, so so presumably they had to go to Fitzgerald's estate and, and get the rights to make that movie. That just came yes. out like less than 10 years ago, right? Yeah, it's a relatively recent movie. I don't know exactly yeah. when it came out, but it's definitely a I'll recent movie. Up. Now, there, there's older movies of The Great Gatsby as well. I think yeah, the first it's been made, was many made times. in 1930. If I remember correctly, is the oldest one. Uh, was actually uh, done to promote the book. I'm going to mention it just in conjunction with this. I happened to this morning. I listened to a bunch of other podcasts as I was going through and figuring out what podcasts to listen to this morning. I happened to notice that one of the podcasts I listened to, which I'm going to 
plug briefly is secretly incredibly fascinating. Uh, it's Alex Schmidt for you guys who know him. He used to do the cracked podcast. He has his own podcast now and he basically goes into sort of, you know, fascinating statistics and everything about the random things. He happened to do one on the great Gatsby. So I purposely listened to it this morning to see what he had for, you know, interesting statistics uh, and information about it. That was one of the things he talked about uh, in conjunction with it is the fact that they were trying to promote the book. They made a movie of it early um, and it didn't work. So I thought that was interesting. I'm uh, shocked that people in the 1920s were not receptive to a literary criticism of their avarice. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it they said, and and again, I'm I'm basing this upon that that podcast is he said the comments with it were at the time people kind of may have treated it more like it was supposed to be a contemporary pulp fiction novel, which it wasn't, uh, and they really weren't interested in it. I can see of- that. I mean, having having read it, it does it does have some of those elements to it. And I, you know, I read it in high school during my English major, and then once after I graduated. And each time, I took something different away from it. Although I never enjoyed any of, you know, I didn't like the story or the characters any of those times. Uh, but I would say when I read it in college, I probably appreciated it the most for its cultural impact and for its, you know, overall themes and messages. And high school is just like it's a, it's a bunch of rich people screwing around. I I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, and I think the thing you really get into, and I don't think the characters are supposed to be likable. I mean, they're supposed to be, you know rich you know um they you know, are. jazz age people um you know as to you know what you have from it and that's you know he'd written a number of books using those as characters uh, one of the things he did talk about which i thought was interesting when we think about it as f scott fitzgerald as well the great Gatsby was one of his last works um and so that means that actually most of his body of work at this point in time is in the public domain um if not all of it and so it's one of those things where you know it's interesting to think about that that you know this being the sort of potentially last novel him having a lot of those potentially common themes, there's a lot now people can use in the public domain related to his bodies of work. The other thing that I think is just really, really intriguing about it, and it's, I love this, I love using The Great Gatsby as a reference in public domain because the whole central premise of Great Gatsby is critiques of capitalism. Yes. And the public domain is nothing, it's very much a true sort of capitalist statement. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of bump into this and The Great Gatsby almost becomes a great analogy for itself. <laughs> which is kind of an intriguing uh, sort of yeah, piece behind it. Definitely. Um, you know, along those lines, one other thing I just thought of that, you know, people should be careful of when they're looking at public domain issues. The novel itself is public domain, but that doesn't necessarily apply to things like forwards, afterwards, yep. we mentioned annotations already, but also cover art. Yeah. Cover art uh, is definitely going to be an issue. Uh, the, the cover art is primarily usually seen the sort of blue background. Yeah. Uh, my understanding that is the first edition that is was it really? the original one published from him. Um, you know, so that is the sort of the, the well-known, you know, sort of thing, you know, from so you'd it. think that would be public domain as well. Then it may be, it may be slightly, again, you don't necessarily know exactly the dates yeah. um, as to where these things are. It potentially should if be. It was, I mean, if that particular image was released earlier, it could have already been public domain independently yeah. of the book. Who knows? So Let's, let's cover a couple other that are interesting here. Kirk and I are looking at, uh, there's uh, Duke, um, Duke Law um, has a website, Public Domain Day, where they kind of track major works entering the public domain. Another one we're not going to cover in any detail is uh, In Our Time by Ernest Hemingway. Um, I've read that too uh, as part of my English degree, and it's sort of a post-World War One grappling with coming back to civilian life book. Um, typical Hemingway. If you like Hemingway, you'll very much enjoy that. If you don't, you won't. <laughs> I, I read one Hemingway and it's, I, I can't remember which one it is. It's, um, Sun also rises. 
um, yeah, is the only I've, I've read, which is not the most well-known Hemingway, but it was again, having the option to do it. I purposely did not choose the two well-known Hemingways. Um, I actually found Hemingway very dull. Um, <laughs> I, I really yeah. didn't enjoy his work, but it's, I understand why people like it. I, uh, I, I enjoy reading it because I can I can relate to that more than to um, like an F. Scott Fitzgerald. A lot of his characters are sort of rural everyman. You know, I'm from Iowa. A lot of the, there's a lot of time spent just describing basic things that they do. Um, I'm trying to think if it was in our time or if it was the sun also rises. I think it was in our time. But there's a, a lengthy section where he just describes this uh, uh, a World War One veteran trying to get out into nature and get away from the city. And he just goes and spends, he spends like 12 pages describing how this guy sets up his camp and goes fishing. <laughs> and although it sounds very boring, if you also need to escape from city life, just reading something like that is actually kind of relaxing and therapeutic. Yeah. The one thing that Hemingway is good for is assuming you find fishing relaxing, reading about fishing via Hemingway can be very relaxing. <laughs> Unless you're reading the old man on the sea, which... <laughs> Is depressing <laughs> well, and another sad. One of, another one of those those few books I would say that you know part of my English education a part of everybody's was Moby Dick. Um, I've which, never read that actually. <laughs> but I would say of of the the great works of you know American literature, great works of sort of what you read in high school or forced to read in high school, Moby Dick was one of my favorites. Um, that's know, not Hemingway. That's um, no, um, not Conrad uh, Melville. Melville. Yeah. Um, the the reason I and I joke about it is actually the scene that most stuck with me from Moby Dick is actually his description of the whalebone church, which most people consider to be one of the most boring sections of the book. <laughs> um, but I actually really I, I enjoyed Moby Dick, I think, because I enjoyed the discussions of whaling and I found it to be a somewhat scientific discussion mm -hmm. of this is what whaling is, how it works, and sort of stuff like that. And I found that very interesting. I actually wasn't that into the story of Moby Dick as much as I was interested in his discussions of whaling which is most people think is sort of the worst part of Moby Dick. Well, and uh, it's, it's interesting. Like one thing I learned in law school is how much of our, our property law and sort of everyday nomenclature and some idioms we have is based off of the whaling industry. Like the term hard and fast yeah. is, a, is a legal term for how you establish property rights to a whale that you've harpooned, but you haven't landed it. They used to just spear the whales, you know, knowing that they would die and wait for them to wash ashore and then go find them and claim them based on the tags that run their harpoons. It's yeah, terrible. There's, some, <laughs> there's some amazing number of like you know, idioms in the United in, in, in American English, maybe the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, that where they come from is amazing. One of the ones I again sort of listening to other podcasts they were just talking about, I think it was on Econ Talk. Um, with that, you were talking about the fabric industry and the number of things that come from the fabric industry. Um, like the phrase loose ends. Um, mm -hmm. you know, which comes from the fabric industry and, uh, and sort of things like that. So it's, it's one of those where it is kind of amazing. I think when you study those types of things, I, I've always sort of assumed that's why historians enjoy what they do is you really sort of see these esoteric details, which lead to stuff that's current. Yep. The vast majority of people just don't know. <laughs> yeah, you have all these terms that sort of linger in language, like like the word "wend," W-E-N-D. Uh -huh. It still exists only because of like two idioms we still have, like "winding" and "wending your way," or like the yeah. moon the moon waxes and wanes. Like those words are never used that way anywhere anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, waxing and waning is a great example. You hardly ever see people use that term in common English, but we talk, always talk about the waxing moon. I mean, you hear that yep. all the time, or the waning moon. Let's talk about one more uh, work of literature that's uh, a little, I don't know, I wouldn't say more interesting, but uh, its its status is sort of unclear. Uh, mein Kampf by uh, this guy named Adolf Hitler was published in 1925. Yeah, um, I mean, 
the interesting thing about it is we're not talking about any translation, um, you know, with it. And the issue here is it's, it's a book which we need to talk about because of the fact that it's, it was published in 1925. That's the the timing as to what it was. And so we have to deal with in conjunction with this. We don't want to say we're having saying anything about the book of being, you know, something you should read or anything along those lines, but the idea of saying it is a very relevant book for its time period that we need to talk about. So the, the German version was published in 1925, but then a sort of sanitized English language version was circulated later in the United States that removed some of the more uh, heinous and objectionable elements of the original, such as Hitler's plan for Nazi domination of the world. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a key point of, of that book. Um, yeah, and that's and the thing with it's interesting about it, and again, we're getting a lot of this from the Duke uh, the Duke Law webpage um, that has the things with this. There were a number of other versions that were published, and again, we're talking about a work that was originally obviously in German, um, and translations can have separate copyrights. That's sort of things. So the reason to talk about this is just because the works underlying. Um, uh, the underlying work is now in public domain does not mean that any individual translation of it is. Now, again, that means you could get the work in its original language and perform your own translation. Nobody can stop you from doing that, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can make a copy of anybody else's translation. Yep. And this is a particularly good work to be illustrating it with it because the, the translations that were made into English in the United States tended to alter it. Um, either to sanitize it or to point out the fact of what wasn't sanitized in it. Well, we should um, say, you know, at the at the time before we got pulled into World War II, there's those famous pictures of like Nazi rallies in Times Square. Yeah, you know, the, the full scope right, uh, of Madison Square Garden was yeah. the The full scope of of Nazi atrocities were not not widely known at the time. It's I don't recall how widely they were known at all prior to the to the war outbreaking. Um, but you know, there there was a, a large amount of of Nazi sympathizers sympathizers in the U.S. who saw Germany as as perhaps a, a useful blunt instrument to go after Soviet communism, which they found at least, if not more, uh, frightening. So uh, it's not surprising that somebody who got a hold of that would have said, uh, you know, somebody sympathetic to um, to Germany's military ambitions in Europe uh, would have thought, well, let's spread that around here and, and try and garner some support. Um, but what what ended up happening, and we're getting all this from the the Duke website. They've done a nice job um, researching this. Uh, a reporter named Alan Cranston, who they say later became a senator, uh, had read the original German language version and noticed that the U.S. versions did not have all of the uh, more horrifying details of Hitler's plan. And so he released an unabridged version that had all of that in English, um, and, uh, but then refused to pay any royalties to Hitler for it. Um, Which I, and, actually, I think is great because it's, it, at the time there was a lot of disputes over, you know, paying royalties across. That's one of those things orders. you wouldn't think about, right? Like, well, yeah, of course you're going to publish it here. And of course you're not going to pay royalties to Hitler. I mean, <laughs> But yeah, it's, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting comment of the idea that he did, he, in some sense, that was an act of protest yeah. um, to not pay royalties. And it's a very effective act of protest if you think about it. Yeah. And then, uh, and so this was 1939 that this happened. Uh, he sold his unauthorized translation for, it says, 10 cents, uh, which undercut the market for the authorized <laughs> and sanitized version. Uh, then it says he was sued for copyright infringement and lost in court. I kind of want to look up that case now <laughs> and see who the plaintiff was. Like, I... I assume it wasn't Adolf Hitler at the time. I would assume it was some U.S. publisher who had the rights. Um, he didn't have any damages, uh, but they were, he was ordered to stop uh, selling the book. Um, so it, it's an interesting little tale there. And, and Kirk and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about this. Um, 
you know, what would have happened to Hitler's copyright to Mein Kampf after that? He, he had no heirs. I don't think he had any brothers or sisters. So uh, what, what happens to his rights? Do they just die with him? Yeah. And so that's, I think, one of the interesting things is it's you could look at this case and say, well, the rights, the rights may have existed. The other thing the Duke website goes into. Not that anybody cares, right? Nobody's yeah. sympathetic to Hitler's copyright <laughs> claims. And- <laughs> uh, but one of the things they actually talk about here, I think, is useful is the, the work may actually never have been registered in the United States. And even to the extent that's it right, registered, yeah. it may not have been renewed. There was, in order to be the term for 2021, you have to have renewed your copyright. So it may very well have entered the public domain long before now. Yeah. Uh, but people are talking about it because it is a work of 1925. Um, but it's one of those things where you kind of look at it and say, but into the extent that there were some kind of royalties owed, who are they owed to? And actually, this is a, a large problem generally at the Copyright Office is what are called orphan works, mm-hmm. um, where people bump in and say, hey, I found this book. Um, for example, I would like to make this into a movie. It still should be under copyright. I want to pay the whoever I need to pay. How do I get license fees? And they simply cannot locate who owns the rights in the book or if there are any rights in the book. And that's it's they're called orphan works. It is a major problem in conjunction with the copyright office. And one they're trying to resolve recently, where they're trying to now create essentially funds where somebody who wants to do this would pay into a fund. For a certain the royalty time. would be like, yeah. a, like a typical rate, typical reasonable um, royalty. And then if somebody who could come forward and say, I am the legitimate owner of the rights in this copyright, you can get the funds out of that orphan works fund. If nobody comes forward in a certain window of years, they're returned to the original payer uh, as to what it is. So it, it is an interesting thing that the orphan works is a, is a major problem in copyright because copyrights are so long and most of the term is post the life of the author. And for some types of works, it's even a bigger problem. Like in, in literature, you can usually figure out who the author is. Uh, you know, it's, it's a written work. But we do have a lot of things like songs, song recordings, which until 1972 were entirely state law. Uh, if you have a random recording laying around, it's, it's not easy just from the recording, if you don't have any more information about it, to figure out who it's by, who the performer was, and, though, and thus who you have to contact to get the rights to use it. So uh, part of the Music Modernization Act from a couple of years ago was to add the, uh, um, the orphaned work or add musical works to the orphaned work registry, too. So these, these issues with, with public domain, what is or is not, you know, you, you'll see people on the Internet you know, boldly and unequivocally describing how public domain works. Be suspicious when you see that. It should be apparent even from at this point that like it's it's not always that simple. You know, my mind comp and really anything before 1976 is a good example. The the U.S. Copyright Act was completely scrapped and rewritten in 1976. So when all of this stuff was being done, it was under the prior act that that Teddy Roosevelt signed into law, and in, I think 1911 maybe or 1909. Uh, and, sounds right. Yeah, and it, it worked very differently. Um, it, uh, it it required it had a shorter term. It required frequent re, uh, registration. You had to give certain notices so you could lose the copyright. So there are works that that you know had longer term and just didn't take advantage of them all for failure to comply with you know formal and statutory requirements. A lot of those formalities were removed from the 1976 Act. So you know modern stuff doesn't you know doesn't accidentally slip into the public domain like that. It's almost impossible. Um, but you know, before that, it could happen, and uh, and you know, Mein Kampf and, and other works may you know, may have had that happen where the whoever was in charge. I mean, can you imagine if you if you're the U.S. publishing outfit in, in say 1950, <laughs> you know, the publishing rights to Mein Kampf, and someone says, "Are we renewing this?" I mean, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah, because it's you obviously have no intention of publishing it. It's va- it's valueless at that point in time to you, yeah. presumably. 
uh, to sell inside the United it's States. Certainly not something you're going to want to go try to make a profit off of. Yeah. You, know, you might you might distribute it for academic and educational use and things like that. But yeah, so the Mein Kampf is a is a peculiar case. Um, other things in the public domain, uh, not a ton of movies yet. We we're looking at the list. There's there's some in here. There's some I've heard of. Um, one of the main ones was uh, Go West by Buster Keaton. Yep. Never seen it, but I have heard of it at least. I know a lot of Buster Keaton. I, I, I happened to take an intro film studies when I was at uh, college, actually, where I, met, where I met my wife in the end. Um, we watched quite a bit of Buster Keaton. And so it was one of those where in the course of doing it, you know, I happen to know. I know Go West um, is one of them. Um, but yeah, it's you were talking silent film era obviously you know that's for his thing so it's you know well-known works famous works one of the interesting things about it is and it's i've wondered about this in conjunction with copyrights um you've got to keep in mind that copyrights for movies and movies with sound particularly music in the background um so when we're talking about like a buster keaton movie where the entire soundtrack is music um there is no you know spoken words over it it's a sound it's a silent movie sync licensing which is connecting the two together is subject to some slightly different copyright rules um, and so it's i think it's interesting to also play around with a possible public domain of exactly how it's going to work with both the music or the soundtrack and the visuals uh, going together versus going apart um, obviously the film is going to you know be based upon the timing but the timing of the music in the background could actually be different um, so that's one of the things I think is also an intriguing concept. You may have a soundtrack to a movie that actually loses its, uh, its or, or gains public domain status before the movie to which it's associated actually gains public domain status. Yeah, and we've got um, some um, some music too. Uh, I'm kind of going through the list here. A lot of jazz, like a lot of jazz yep. and, and early blues. Uh, of note, a couple of works by uh, Bessie Smith, who if you're not familiar with her, uh, was w- one of maybe the most popular and famous vocalists of her era, at least for jazz and blues music. Um, really, it's she's one of those performers where if if you heard a, a song by her, you recognize it. Um, yeah, very, very distinctive. Uh, Fat Swaller, Duke Ellington, um, you know, others are on this list. Um, WC Handy. Yes, WC Handy. Um, I keep waiting to see, uh, or oh, Irving Berlin, some of his works. So I keep waiting to see, um, oh gosh, what's the one that we always talk about when we talk about the, the Sonny Bono Act? Um, Gershwin. Gershwin. Yeah, Red there's City a Gershwin Blue. in here. There's a Gershwin in here looking for a boy. Yeah. Um, from, from Tiptoes, which is musical. I have to admit, I don't particularly know. Um, I used to be, I used to be kind of seriously into musicals and that's a musical I don't yeah. know. So it's kind of surprising, but Rhapsody in blue was last year. It was 1924. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was a major one from last yeah. year. So, uh, so lots of stuff, uh, just Google public domain day, 2021, you'll find lists of, of some of the more famous works, uh, and a lot of discussion of, um, you know, the, the Hitler copyright, which it, it sounds like a Saturday night live skit kind of, uh, and there's also, uh, there's a lot of other works, um, that uh, are, are less popular, but uh, are, are still out there and you'll, you'll run into them. So uh, it's worth taking a look at. One thing we should mention briefly is, you know, in the U.S., for all practical purposes, copyrights are, are expire now based on the original publication date. But there are places in the world that are still primarily driven by the life of the author standard. Uh, and so for, for those places, you're looking at authors who died either in 1950, if the term is life plus 70, or uh, 19... Uh, uh, maybe won't be even more recent 1970 for life plus 50 countries. So one of those is a uh, uh, Burroughs who wrote Tarzan. So in those countries, uh, Tarzan is now public domain, although I think it might already be in the U S the, the novel again, not the, uh, not the um, any of the films that you may have seen. 
So uh, lots of interesting things going on. Uh, you know, Google that, check it out. And then we should also say, be, you know, be careful, especially with music. We've mentioned books where it's usually easy to tell if there's some additional copyrighted material that's been added to the original. But with music and to some extent film, it can be trickier because you don't always know if the works have been remastered or retouched or cleaned up in some way to a sufficient degree that whoever did it has acquired a separate independent copyright on the retouched or remastered work, which can happen, even though it's the exact same movie. Um, that, yeah. that can certainly happen. And there's some dispute as to exactly, you know, how much needs to change. You know, th I know there was an argument for a while as to, you know, was digitization of a movie uh, sufficient to grant it a new copyright? Um, one of the ones I know has been a, a little bit of a battle for a while, and I don't know if it's truly been sorted out, is whether or not the editing of a movie for television uh, yeah. is considered sufficient to be the thing because you have to obviously cut the movie down to a particular, particular time window. You have to add breaks in order to deal with the, the advertisements. And with nowadays it's not as big of a deal because most movies are still, uh, most TVs are widescreen, but at the time when you had to do a pan and scan, yeah, pan scan yeah. um, was that sufficient? So it's one of those things where I think it's very, there's a lot of sort of intriguing things there to keep in mind with public domains. And again, one of the things to really keep in mind is who did, who, who's done the recording. With music, the real downside of it is the, the work could readily be, the actual musical work could readily be public domain. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yeah. I mean, which is no question that's asked public domain. The question with it is, though, is the vast majority of recordings of that recordings that are, of the big thing, yeah. are actually not public domain. <laughs> we should emphasize that, especially. So for musical works, there's two copyrights, sometimes three, in, a, in what we think of as a song or, or what in the law is a quote unquote musical work. There's the composition, which is, you know, what, what are the, the notes and tones and pauses that make up the melody of the song? And then there's a recording of somebody performing the song. Those are two different things. So if a song was written and, and, and the, the composition, you know, say the, uh, uh, the sheet music was published in 1925 uh, or earlier, that is public domain. But if a performer then picked it up and recorded it in 1931 or 1945, those recordings are not public domain, even though the underlying uh, sheet music is. So for practical purposes, what this means is compositions, you no longer have to go get you know, a mechanical license to make your own recording or, or cover of them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's uh, you know, uh, open season on any recording you can find. So be careful with using recordings that you find to what, what may seem like a public domain work, but may not be. And I think that sort of goes to the point earlier we talked about with public domain, it's hard to know exactly public domain, it's complicated. What, what public domain is, is very simple. What's in public domain is complicated. Um, and I think yeah. that's the real key thing to sort of keep track of this is it's when you say something's in the public domain, once something is definitively in the public domain, it, knowing what you can do with it is easy. You can do anything. Um, and so it's easy, but it's hard to know necessarily when a particular work yeah. enters the public domain because we, so much of, of copyright gets tangled in our various interpretations of it. So again, you can look at it and say the great Gatsby as a novel is in the public domain, but the movies are not in the public domain, mm -hmm. you know? And so you have to be careful as, is it based on the novel? Is it based on the movie? You know, those are the kind of things where you bump into it. Cause what you're usually creating in these is a derivative work. Um, and that's where the question comes is what's in the public domain. The underlying thing has to be what's in the public domain. And so again, if you were to write a screenplay from the great Gatsby, the novel, you're fine. If you were to write a screenplay from the great Gatsby, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, you may have an issue because that actually is that movie is not in the public domain. Like no question. That's not in the yeah. public domain. That's it's not old enough. And so you now bump into, well, what is, is your movie based on a public domain work or not? Um, 
and those types of questions. Now, obviously, you know, it, it's up to courts to resolve those. And, you know, you can have issues where they can look at it and say, no, it's based on one versus the other. But it, it, it's one of those where when you see somebody who says something like, you know, well, everything's in the public domain, these kind of things are all public domain, you really have to be a bit cautious about yeah. that of really knowing what it is that's in the public domain. Yeah, the, the Great Gatsby is a good example of that. It's you know, it's possible to write an original screenplay adaptation of the novel, The Great Gatsby, that still hews too closely to the 2013 Leonardo DiCaprio interpretation to infringe the copyright on the movie by copying the visual and stylistic elements of that film and and pointing back and saying, no, 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 it entered the public domain in 1925. Yeah, the the book did, but you're not being sued by F. Scott Fitzgerald's heirs. You're being sued by whoever owns the rights to 2013 Great Gatsby movie. So you have to still be careful. You can't just copy anything you find. You know, the novel entered the public domain. The films have not. And to the extent that the films have independently copyrightable materials, they are subject to their own term and can still be enforced. So it creates real messy problems sometimes. Let's, let's shift gears here real quick and then we'll have to wrap it up because we're getting close to my, my hard break. Um, we have um, a new president of the United States and with new presidents usually comes new patent office personnel. Yep, and that is coming because uh, as of, I believe it was Monday, the, uh, the head of the patent office did resign. Andrew, uh, and Andre, Andre, Andre Yansu, yeah. <laughs> yep, uh, did, did resign as the head of the United States Patent and Trademark Office um, and new people have taken over. Um, I know you have the exact term. There's a particular term they're using. Yeah, so taking over until until the actual. So we should say that the, the the patent office used to be just run by the commissioner of patents, and some time ago they added a new position, which is the director of the patent office. And then there's a commissioner for the patent side of the house and a commissioner for the trademark side of the house. And the patent commissioner right now is uh, Drew Drew Hirschfeld. Drew Hirschfeld. I forget uh, what his last name is. Um, and then uh, Andre Iansu was the director who's appointed by the president. Uh, Yansu has resigned, which is, is typical. And uh, it's, it's normal for a new president to come in and assign a new director to the PTO. Uh, president Obama did this, President Trump did it, and now President Biden is going to do it. We don't know, at least I haven't seen yet, who he's going to appoint. I haven't even seen like a shortlist or anything like that. You, most people don't follow this kind of thing that closely because it's not political and you can't get very <laughs> mad about it. So, so no one cares. <laughs> But uh, in, the, in the meantime, someone still has to fulfill that role because when patents issue, the director by statute, I believe, has to has sign to the sign patent. Them. Yeah. And so somebody has to at least have that responsibility. But I, I learned this this week. There is an official regulation, I believe, governing what it means to be the quote unquote acting officer of any U.S. government position, and that also requires a special procedure to be appointed. So since Iansu has resigned, uh, Drew Hirschfeld has been uh, placed in that responsibility, but technically he's not the acting director. He is the person currently fulfilling the roles and responsibilities of the director, which is I guess something different. So yeah. this is just a lesson in bureaucratic nomenclature. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and interesting as, as, a, as a legal podcast is sort of talking about some of the stuff you know associated with the law. This is this is law. They can't call him the acting director because yeah. that term has legal meaning. Yeah, there's legal <laughs> consequences. And for all I, know, I mean, I don't know what what all that means. I never worked for the federal government in any reasonable capacity, but you know, it, it could be it could be something like once you do that, you're entitled to a federal pension or something like that. Or, <laughs> you know, so they they're very careful about this kind of stuff and following the formalities. Um, 
It'll be interesting to see uh, who President Biden appoints. I do remember when when President Trump took office, there was a bit of a not really like a, a dust up, but some confusion about what was going on uh, because we had different government websites said different things about the current status of uh, Director Lee, who was uh, President Obama's appointee. And I think some of the websites said she was still director. Some had said she wasn't. And at some point, a couple of patent lawyers fire, filed a uh, Freedom of Information Act request with one question. Who's running the PTO? <laughs> yeah. And the government, I think, uh, was either unwilling or unable to answer it. Um, and this was, you know, it's not a purely academic question. Again, whoever is in charge of the PTO signs the patents. So if, if Director Lee is no longer the director and she's signing the patents, then does that make those patents invalid? I mean, these are real questions people had. It all got worked out and it wound up being a, a whole bunch of nothing. But um, this is the kind of stuff that, that lawyers obsess over. <laughs> yeah, these, as we joke about it, and we've joked about it a couple of times in conjunction with it, these are what we refer to as law school exam questions. Um, so if you ever go to law school, these are the kind of things they love to ask you on exams is, you know, in the event that, you know, a person who is not the director of the Patent and Trademark Office signed a patent, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, you know, because it's a it's sort of an area of legal esoteria that is is interesting to speculate on, even though it would probably never actually go to a yeah. court. <laughs> the, the circumstance where it comes up is where you happen to have a patent enforced against you that was uh, issued on like January 22nd, signed by Director Lee, and you challenge the validity of the patent on this very technical ground that direct, you know, that Michelle Lee was no longer the director, had no authority, therefore the patent's invalid. I think it's, you know, I'm hypothesizing here, but Kirk, correct me if, you're, you're, if you think I'm wrong. I think it's extremely unlikely a court would be <laughs> sympathetic to that kind of argument. I think they'd say, look, it was a transition of power. Sometimes it doesn't always, you know, go, go cleanly or <laughs> neatly. Uh, sometimes there's questions while we get people in place. It's a pretty typical part of the process. And we're not going to invalidate a patent by a patent owner who did nothing wrong on grounds that the federal government is sometimes disorganized. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of the same questions I had. We were actually talking about it. We watched the inauguration and I noted in the inauguration, they swore in Vice President Harris. Then they had a song. Then they swore in President Biden. The Constitution, if I remember rightly, specifically states that the transition occurs at noon. Regardless of the swearing um, in. Yeah. Regardless of the swearing in and everything else. But what does it mean to the extent that you have, you know, like, is Vice President Harris Vice President to Donald Trump for 30 seconds uh, in the course of that, depending on exactly sort of what occurs in there. And again, this is kind of the law school question. You can see the sort of question coming in as, you know, if something was to happen where somebody was assassinated at high noon, yeah. who becomes president for the one second <laughs> that that needs to be dealt with? You know, those kind of intriguing questions that you get into. And so you, you bump into these sort of, you know, weird um, like legal questions as to what it is. Um, but, you know, they, they don't necessarily have any answers, but are very intriguing. And that's one I just happened to note that I thought it was interesting that they, they not only do, you know, they obviously take some time to do the physical inauguration and the swearing in, but that they purposely put a gap in it. Yeah. Uh, to have a song between there. What does that mean if something had happened in the gap? I, I think the, I, I don't know this. I'm not, I'm not an expert at all on like presidential law, but I, I believe the changeover happens automatically at noon. So at 11.59 and 59 seconds a.m., uh, President Trump and President Pence are still in charge. And, and the one second later, it's President Biden and Vice President um, uh, Harris. Harris. So I, you know, I think I think whether they're sworn in or not, that happens. You got to get sworn in eventually. But uh, that's the same with all federal officers uh, at that level, at least. So I, you know, I think that's why I always found the QAnon theory, uh, conspiracy theory, so 
bizarre. They're like, they're going to arrest <laughs> Biden. I'm like, well, even if they do, then he becomes president in jail. I mean, what <laughs> make? that's what the Constitution says. So uh, it's, it's so, it's so we had an episode we did. Um, gosh, I think it was in the first season. We talked about the sovereign citizen movement and some of the bizarre like like theories that they have about flag fringes and like if, if there's a flag in court and it's facing the wrong way, then it means you're in some kind of maritime court and all this weird exaltation of like legal formalities that don't actually exist in real law, where like if it's all capital letters, that means that your name is a corporation. And when you're born, they create some shell corporation and don't ever sign your name and not in all capitals because it means referring to the corporation with your name and not, none of that is real. Okay. Just That's all nonsense. Just to use one, it's actually really interesting in conjunction with that because it's, you know, being IP lawyers and talk about IP. Anybody who notes a word trademark. So if you actually have a word trademark um, in the United States, when word trademarks are, if you go to the United States Patent Trademark Office and you look up any word trademark, so not something that has a logo associated with it in any way, but just which is a collection of letters, they are always presented in all capital letters. Now that's partially because capitalization doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, in a word in a word trademark, but they're always presented in all capital letters. You will never see one in lowercase letters. And so that's another sort of intriguing thing. I'm like, well, what would it mean if they published your trademark in lowercase letters? Well, the answer is they never will. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Because when you file it, you say that I'm, I, I'm claiming the trademark regardless of capitalization, font, color, style, any of that. I'm claiming the word, not the way that it looks. And that is oh. the definition of a word trademark. Yeah. I mean, if, if you file it otherwise, it's a stylized presentation, which says, I do care about capitalization. I do care about font, stuff like that. Yeah. Did you follow any of that QAnon stuff? It's it's kind of kind of fascinating, really, the stuff that they come up with. Like, like they should quit their job as conspiracy theorists and just write novels. <laughs> well, it's actually one of the things that I always comment about. As I said, one of the things that most intrigues me about like a lot of the Manchurian candidate theories that they have with it. And I always said Manchurian candidate theories, were, and I think I've said this in a prior co- uh, podcast even, weren't great as movies because – Everybody has a script of what's going to happen. Yeah. The problem when you talk about them sort of in a real life world, like the Manchurian candidate, if you think about the idea of creating a Manchurian candidate, the odds of something going wrong in the course of the person's lifetime, which throws the, the throws it so it doesn't work anymore is a fascinating thing. And actually the one, if you're into it, I'd suggest reading. I don't know the author. I don't know what it was. A book I read in college that was recommended by my wife is a book called The Second Lady. Um, and what it is, is it's actually about, and as much enough, the second lady is technically the usual vice president's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the second gentleman. I found out that's the correct term for him. Oh, uh, I was wondering really. about that. What the I was wondering about him? it too, actually. He's the second gentleman. I don't even know his name. What's, what's uh, um, Mr. Harris's name? I can't remember. It's, I, I don't even know. know. <laughs> Uh, but the, I guess it how important we think he is. <laughs> the, uh, but no offense, the, uh, <laughs> Mr. Harris, if you're listening. Uh, but the, um, the thing with it is, is that they actually, it's a, it's a foreign conspiracy where they replace the first lady um, with a spy, essentially, um, that's going to be there. And the challenge of it is, is they have orchestrated around it, because she's only going to be there for a certain window of time, a, a, things that she can't do because she doesn't know what the first lady behaves with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, it, it actually primarily interesting that focuses around sex. That's the, the thing sort of that they do in a lot of conjunction with it, but there's a number of other things that she can't do because they have no way of knowing how the first lady behaves hmm. in these situations because there's situations which has no public portion yeah. of them. So the second lady has to purposefully stay out of those situations. And that's the thing is they orchestrate some of this, but in the course of orchestrating some of it, things go somewhat wrong uh, in the course of doing it. And suddenly it's, and the story's told sort of as the second lady of them, her trying to damage control, 
trying to figure out how do hmm. I behave the way the first lady would behave, not knowing how the first lady will behave and can I do it? Uh, and as a spoiler alert, I'm going to give a little bit away about the, 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 the book at the end. The key thing at the book at the end is they are in the process of we are going to transition um, back from the second lady to the first lady um, and make this this whole transition work in a terrorist bomb. It blows up Air Force One and kills one of them. Ah, and we don't know which one. And we don't know which one. Um, and that's the issue in conjunction with it is that one survives. Nobody it's just like a Mission Impossible storyline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knew the other one existed except for these small people. They don't know which one is. And because the, 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 the second lady had already navigated through all the problems of trying to deal with being the first lady in the private situations, nobody else will know. And so the, the key question with this is, is which one survives? And it's impossible to know. Um, wow. So it's a really great book. If those of you who want to read it, I did just give away the ending. Um, but I would recommend it as sort of a cool book. I always think it's, it's like the, what the Manchurian candidate should be because they're literally only doing it for like two weeks and it's fraught with peril um, of the fact that there's all these things going on that they just don't know about. So along those lines, if you like that kind of storyline, um, this is a, an older film, but uh, my wife and I saw the, uh, that Jordan Peele film us it's uh, Jordan Peele is a really interesting writer and director. Um, he does a lot of uh, horror slash filler type uh, movies, um, but, but from a uniquely African-American perspective, so you get a different type of film than you get from a typical horror film. Uh, Us was truly terrifying. It didn't make a lot of sense, but it's a horror film, so it doesn't really have to. Uh, but it, it was it's expertly made, and that man has a talent for framing a shot and building up suspense and, and using really the lack of motion and, and just basic psychological tricks to present a, a very compelling and, and just terrifying uh, uh, um setting so if, if you like um that kind of thing uh check out us it was uh, it was very good w watch it in the daylight though it scared the crap out of me and I, just, I don't usually scare easy in horror films i just looked at it quick so irving wallace is the uh, author of these of the second lady uh, interesting enough I, I i googled second lady quick and forgot to type novel and of course got a ton of google hits on our current second uh, what second lady means is a general term but yeah i think it's a um uh, it's an interesting thing with it. But yeah, it, it's interesting to talk about us. That's actually a list on my horror movies I really want to see because I keep hearing from people saying it's a, it's it's a good. wonderful horror movie. Um, I just watched, interestingly enough, from uh, talking about, you know, sort of things and, and doing things in the pandemic. I happened to have just watched, I, I wanted to watch a, a sort of good horror movie and needed to find something. So I actually watched 28 Days Later. Um, I didn't watch the entire thing because I remember when I saw it the first time, I found the ending to be a bit disappointing yeah. of sort of, you know, where it went. But I watched a lot of the beginning. I actually watched until they get to the military safe house, which is when I, I thought the, the film kind of jumped the shark at times. Um, but one of the things I thought was so interesting, and if you're into this kind of thing with it, um, is what it was. Watching him walk through London at the beginning mm -hmm. and his him learning about the pandemic, which is 28 days later, creation, the zombie pandemic that creates it, the rage. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is comparing what he sees and the way people react to that to sort of current what we see and the way we react to that. And the thing that really struck me is him standing in front of the bulletin board, the news board uh, at, the, at the, the famous news shop in London and the notices that are up and the idea of what you see with that and seeing like the abandoned locations and things like that. I just thought it was a very interesting to see. This was obviously written 
you know, beforehand, before anybody had really experienced, you know, the uh, experience of living through a pandemic, uh, especially not of that nature, but to see the uniqueness of the way he portrays it and what he thought it would be like and seeing the similarities and the differences uh, with it. But it's, I thought it was a really interesting movie to watch. It was a, a unique perspective to see. That is also, if you haven't seen it, that is a very good movie. <laughs> so, you know, a horror is a sort of horror, scary zombie movie. Uh, last couple minutes here, I had one question I wanted to run by you. You and I did an episode um, late last year where we kind of went over all the new Star Wars stuff that's coming out, <laughs> but you had not yet seen um, the Mandalorian season two at that point. Now that you have, does it change your interest level in any of those new shows? Uh, a little bit. Uh, the one thing I have to say with it, and it's, uh, I'm, I, I come in about, I really wanted to see the new Ahsoka yeah. series. I really liked Ahsoka from the Clone Wars. I was not thrilled with Ahsoka's character in the Mandalorian. Um, I didn't think that she was portrayed that well. Uh, it's what it is. And I, and I don't know if it's just because it's unfamiliarity with the, you know, the characters new sort of things like that. Um, but I want I'm curious what they're going to do with her personality. Her personality didn't seem to mesh very well with what you saw in the clone wars, but she's also much older. A lot and, has happened. <laughs> yeah. And obviously has lived through an enormous change. I mean, yeah, in the clone wars, like the Republic's still good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, and so, you know, sort of stuff like that, you know, she's working with, with stormtroopers on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, so I was a little curious as to exactly where does that go? Because I actually did find her portrayal in the Mandalorian a little bit disappointing. Um, but it was also, she was a secondary character. She yeah. was there because they needed to advance this sort of particular plot line. There were parts of what she did that I really liked, um, but I just found that it's, I'm curious as to where that's going to go. And I hope it goes well. Um, the other thing is uh, somewhere in it, we talked about the bad batch um, as well. And one of the other ones being um, rogue squadron. I've seen a little bit more sort of in conjunction with both um, Mandalorian and with watching a little more clone wars. Those have intrigued me a little bit more now um, as possibilities much more. So I think, you know, they were at the time they were, I was kind of lukewarm, especially on bad batch. I'm, I'm not quite as lukewarm on those anymore. I'm starting to think maybe those could be also potentially interesting stories. And I'm curious to see where they go. So now it's my turn to get caught up. I've only seen like two episodes of the clone wars and uh, Ahsoka is in them. And I agree, even from, from my limited exposure to the character, I found the portrayal in Mandalorian, I wouldn't say disappointing, but a little jarring. And I didn't know if like, I just don't know the character well enough, but it did not did not connect well thematically. Like uh, it could have been any character, right? I don't know why that, yeah. you know, it didn't have to be Ahsoka. And I just assumed it was because they wanted to have some continuity with the other series. Um, so maybe they'll fill in some backstory when they, when they develop what will inevitably be her quest to find Grand Admiral Thrawn <laughs> and, uh, and, and explain how she got to be the way that she was. So we'll yeah. see. I mean, we saw that with Luke, right? In episode eight, and he'd become this, this bitter old man on an Island that was doing his best uh, Bernie Sanders sitting in the cold. impression. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it, you definitely, you check out the meme of Bernie Sanders sitting in the cold. Uh, <laughs> they, they call it Cold Man Sanders. <laughs> right. My favorite one of it was commenting about the. Uh, they had a. Uh, I saw a meme today showing a picture, and it showed two uh, two people sitting at a desk. One of whom's kind of sitting there looking bored, and has underneath him um, uh, watching the Biden inauguration. And the next one underneath it is is a woman, and she has a, the mass of microphones in front of her, mm -hmm. and has watching Bernie Sanders, <laughs> which I thought was kind of hilarious as to you know what it. Uh, uh, you know what we saw with it, but yeah, the um, again, the thing I had with Ahsoka and the thing I, I, I saw in conjunction with other movies was I know it's also at the end of Clone Wars, at least I've, I've heard from this, there is supposed to be a showdown between her and Anakin, um, which is supposed to be a very tragic scene. 
And so I'm curious about if that would also, you know, alter it to make me make her make more sense. Cause I haven't made it that far through clone wars yet. Uh, if that is possibly, you know, where it is and the idea that she's got that tragic character is obviously the character she is in clone wars is a very hopeful, uh, you know, in slightly naive in some yeah. respects character, it works very well as a foil for Anakin and a foil for Ben. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, sort of fit what we saw in Mandalorian. But at the same time, as we said, Mandalorian is set much later. It's set with, you know, an enormous global spanning conflict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that saw the Jedi exterminated. She, that, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, yeah, that she, mean, she may have taken that personally. <laughs> every, every friend she has is dead. One of at the hands of her mentor, um, you know, so it's one of those things like you have is it's okay. Like you can definitely see some change in her character, but it was a bit jarring as to just sort of what it was. And again, I think it's also, she doesn't have that much screen time yeah. in that particular episode. Cause she is a side character we don't get a lot of the intro. We don't get a lot of the backstory. I'm curious, still curious to see where it's going to go. What I did really like in that episode is I thought the portrayal of the, the woman being the arms dealer um, that, you know, they're sort of associated with in conjunction with it. And the idea that there are these very powerful individuals within the, the empire, within the Republic, within the old new Republic, new Republic that are extremely powerful, that are kind of like regional warlords type of thing. Also, I really liked her. And I also think that's part of the reason why Ahsoka is kind of done is I think her character is very interesting as well. Um, and so you kind of, in, in some sense, she didn't just get upstage. She got upstaged by the Mandalorian, by Baby Yoda, and by the, the villain. Um, you know, for the purposes of that particular plot, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Indeed. All right. Well, that's all I've got for today. And I don't have my readout sheet in front of me, so I can't do our, our usual out, outro. So <laughs> I will just say for our next episode, uh, we have not decided what we're going to do yet. Um, in the back, I haven't talked to Kirk about this yet, but in the back of my mind, I've got, we should probably do a deep dive at some point into Google v. Oracle. That decision will be coming out. Uh, people are interested in it. It is going to be inaccurately reported all over the place by the media. <laughs> uh, I already know that much about it. Um, and then well, I've, I've been threatening to do a net neutrality episode since basically our first episode. And I've never really circled back to it. And sometime a, a while back, I promised to explain why uh, the Marconi Radio Company and the Titanic tell you everything you need to know about net neutrality. So um, we'll try and get to that. Uh, and, and there may be some changes to our net neutrality policies under the new administration because that all falls under the... Uh, uh, the F, uh, well, combination of the FCC and the FTC, and uh, Ajit Pai, who was the architect of our current net neutrality uh, policies, has um, uh, rotated off the board. So there may be some changes coming there, and that will probably be in the news in the next 12 months. So we'll probably return to that issue as well, and uh, whatever else we think of. So uh, that's all I've got. Kirk, any, any last thoughts today? I think that's sort of the end of my thoughts. Um, you know, it's, I, I definitely like the idea of doing this sort of public domain uh, episode. It's not something we necessarily talk about. We talk about copyright, I think, more than we intend to a lot of times because it's just interesting and it has a lot of interesting questions. And it's easy. It. <laughs> it's easy. There's a lot of it. There's <laughs> a lot of it. Uh, but, you know, I think it is, it's one of those where there are a lot of sort of intriguing IP issues. And like we talked briefly about the, the director of the patent and trademark office here, there's a lot of IP issues and a lot of sort of things that have major impact in the IP world that the general public really doesn't see. Um, you know, anybody who's listening to this that isn't a lawyer and actually knew that, you know, Andrew, Andrew, uh, ah. Yansu. <laughs> Yansu. <laughs> I started trying to say his first name and then mixed the two names together. Yansu had stepped down. I would be amazed. 
um, you know, is this kind of thing. It's a, it's a sort of, you know, quiet thing, but to it's not a headline grabbing development, you know? <laughs> yeah. But to people who are, you know, involved in the patent trademark office every day, this is a major event, you know, as to what's going on. So it's, there's a lot of like IP law that goes on in the background that people just don't see. And I think that's one of the things that's a, a, a real fundamental theme of this episode. Yeah, for sure. There's so much stuff that goes on that people don't see or don't completely understand that is, is interesting. All right. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. And then his arch rival is um, the football player, Tom Buchanan. Tom, you know, what would he, I guess he'd be a Klingon? It's, it, Klingon's a little bit too boisterous. I, the, my, my immediate take with it, and again, I've seen the movie, so I remember a bit of it. Yeah. My take is almost making him more like Romulan. So he's yeah, more manipulative. Yeah. You know, and again, I'm thinking Romulan actually from uh, Picard. Uh, the Romulans that are portrayed in that, I like, I re- actually really like the way they're portraying the Romulans in that. The Romulans are like, what the KGB is when we make it work really well in the future.